1: This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to a new week and a new episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, and I am joined by our regulars. In Alexandria, Virginia, we have Rosa Brooks of Georgetown Law Center. How are you, Rosa?
2: Hi, David. I'm well, thank you.
1: When is your book out, Rosa?
2: David, I'm glad you asked that question. My book comes out tomorrow, and it is called Tangled Up in Blue. And it is a bargain at any price, and everyone should order multiple copies for their friends, family, enemies, etc.
1: So that would be Tangled Up in Blue, and it's out tomorrow?
2: Yes, that is Tangled Up in Blue, and it is out tomorrow, and you can buy it on Amazon.com. Well,
1: let's just see if we can see what the average, you know, a passerby in the street feels about this. In California, we've got somebody parked in a parking lot alongside the side of the road. What's your name, ma'am?
0: My name is Corey Shockey, and I'm an average American voter who's desperate to get my hands on a copy of Rosa Brooks's Tangled in Blue, which is why I'm waiting outside my local bookstore to have them order it for me.
1: Wow, that's an incredible coincidence! Um,
2: <laughs> or um, you're in luck; it will be available shortly.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, it'll be available shortly. What's it about, <laughs> by the way? Do we do we know yet?
2: Um, well, I bet I'm going to try to decide between now and tomorrow um, when it comes out. If, no, it's 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 called "Tangled Up in Blue: Policing the American City." And it is, as that subtitle suggests, it is about policing and it draws on the four and a half years I spent as a reserve police officer in Washington, D.C.
1: Yeah. You know, David Sanger, who uh, was often in Washington, D.C., as was a beneficiary of your police. Um, yes, I
2: constantly protected David Sanger's personal security.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, that, that that's that's we're all grateful for that. Uh, I I'm, I'm wondering David since uh, since you're also with us what will you be doing tomorrow when your bookstore opens
3: Well you know I'm up in Vermont and the way we've solved this this issue is that they're going to give a copy of Rose's book out with every coronavirus shot <laughs> So uh, so there's going to be a, a a little bit of a skewing in age uh right <laughs> now it's Vermont's at the 75 up 75 and up uh uh, run for getting the shot. So, David, you qualify, uh, oh, but, uh, <laughs> but
0: but everybody mean, David, gonna, <laughs> but everybody else is cheap shot.
3: But everybody else is going to go get Rose's book with it, and and it's a it's a really great way of assuring sort of a hundred percent distribution.
1: That's great. And where did you get your large type copy of the book, David? <laughs> I'm going for the I'm going for the audio book. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, David, I think you've got this the wrong way around. Somebody sent me some little, you know, viral meme that said, if we really wanted to vaccinate all Americans by the end of the week, we should just train the Amazon Prime delivery people to to administer vaccinations. <laughs> there's yeah.
3: a lot to that oh yeah. yes country, yeah, half the country would get it in two days that'd be perfect yeah, yeah given the right. way they're
1: treated by their management i suspect they might all be a little angry and That's i don't know quite possible we want them to be handling sharp instruments <laughs> um well you know this is great i'd like to get ahead with the episode but i seem to have forgotten the name of your book already again rosa what is oh it? oh
2: my god david how could you forget? Tangled up in blue, policing the American City. And I will have you know, uh, as a person of your of your advanced age, should beware. Oh, this is sake. a fact a <laughs> reference to a song by famous song by Bob Dylan.
1: Yeah, I'm not I'm not that old. Um well I guess he's still around, isn't he? Anyway. He is
2: still around. I yeah. think he he is still
1: Yeah, and he couldn't sing then and he can't sing now. Which is really mean. And
0: yet, one of the great lyricists of our time,
1: Nobel Prize winning poet, Bob Dylan. Uh, So let's shift focus a little bit here. And I'd like to play a game with you folks. And I'd like to break it into two parts. The first half of the game, I want to, you know, we'll call the foreign policy part. And the second half, I'd like to call the national security part, Uh, because that's the kind of thing that we talk about around here. Um, And it 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 sort of turns on something that I've been thinking a little bit about, and that is, you know, you, a new administration comes in and there's a certain amount of stuff they do that's the easy part, and then there's the hard part. You know, the easy part's the stuff they do during the honeymoon. Um, you can do it by signing a piece of paper, doing an executive order, appointing somebody, announcing a change in a policy. Then the hard part involves... Things where you need to get other people to agree with you, whether they're other countries or whether they're institutions, including the United States Congress. And I'd like to sort of break things down. What is the easy part for the Biden administration and foreign policy? What's the hard part? And I'd just like to go around to each one of you and you can talk about whatever comes to your mind as we talk about this, just to give a sense of what's likely to be done in the remaining weeks of the honeymoon. And then, what's likely to be done in the year or year and a half that follows before we get into the midterms? And I will start with, um, uh, let's start with Rosa Brooks, who I believe has a new book coming out tomorrow. Um,
2: if you forgot the title again, I can. I can what is it? You. It's Tangled Up in Blue.
1: Tangled Up in, in Blue. America. Yeah.
2: Well, so, okay, what's, what's easy and what's hard in this honeymoon period, making speeches is easy and Biden has done a good job of that. And he made, he, he gave a great speech on foreign policy at the State Department uh, last week. Um, and I think he has rhetorically been striking all the right notes. He's been emphasizing the importance of uh, rebuilding alliances, restoring trust and cooperation with allies, rejoining international institutions and international treaties, um, uh, prioritizing human rights, not giving uh, uh, aid and comfort to repressive regimes, and so on and so forth, and all of that is wonderful. And as I said, is, is pretty easy to do. Uh, Trump could somehow never do it. That was a different problem, I think. Um, the hard part is when push comes to shove, balancing those rhetorical commitments with the sort of Realpolitik, obviously, and I think we're already bumping up against that with both China and Russia, you know, as as Biden acknowledged in in that speech last week. um, We need to be able to cooperate even with adversaries on certain key issues, including climate change, pandemic uh, issues, etc. And it's not so easy in practice to square saying to China, stop what you're doing you're violating the rule of law you're being too aggressive you must stop you must you must uh stop being stop repressing your own people stop 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 and then simultaneously say oh by the way um we can work together on a b c d and e it's it's a hard tightrope to walk the same is true the same is true obviously with putin the same is true with israelis the same with uh, many other governments where the U.S. simultaneously has, you know, strong overlapping shared interests but fairly profound disagreements. So I, I think that's just going to be that, and and that's not unique to Biden. Obviously, that's that's a challenge that every president who cares about human rights and so on inevitably faces: is uh, how do you how do you put some teeth behind those rhetorical commitments without either ending up in in wars of choice uh, or simply ending up alienating the people who you also need to work with.
1: Corey Saki.
0: So I agree with everything Rosa just said, um, but I would put a a slightly wider aperture on it. Namely, it's not just the bad guys that a human rights-centric policy is going to... Uh, run up against, but uh, you know, Germany, the possible next chancellor of Germany, um, is a lot closer in attitudes on Russia to Gerhard Schroeder than he is to Angela Merkel. Uh, and uh, the Biden administration's absolutely proper and admirable belief that we need to line up other democracies along our side. To manage a rising China, that's that's going to get really difficult because of Manster Olson's famous free rider problem in alliances.
1: You may want to just Germans take a moment. You, you defense- want to just take a moment and explain what you mean by closer to Gerhard Schroeder, because not everybody knows that the former chancellor is essentially kind of a Russian employee. So what? It, what? It-
0: exactly, literally. <laughs> a Russian employee. He's a board member of Gazprom, the Russian national energy company. Um, And while Chancellor was a major architect of pushing the Nord Stream 2 pipeline forward, uh, and so is lining the pockets of Vladimir Putin and the Russian oligarchs. And for all of Germany's pieties about alliance solidarity, They have been a lot more worried about that pipeline project proceeding than they have been worried about the complaints, not just of the United States, but of Poland and the Baltic states and other European neighbors about it. Um, Chancellor Merkel, I think, has done a very good job of holding the line on Russian sanctions in the EU. Uh, I think she deserves the majority of the credit for that. Uh, But it's going to be harder to get her to that place on China, where she shames Volkswagen for its plant just outside Uyghur internment camps. She's definitely not there yet. And the Biden administration, I think a second hard thing is going to be the Biden administration trying to push forward the idea of an alliance of democracies. because. The borderline states, Poland, Hungary, uh, who shouldn't qualify as free societies given the authoritarian crackdowns going on, um, you know, they're the problem Rosa mentioned, even more extreme because we need their cooperation even more than we need other countries' cooperation for the Biden administration to consolidate a values based coalition. Another problem I think is going to be, and I promise I'll stop after this one, David, um, is immigration. The Biden administration, (coughs) excuse me, the Biden administration has done the popular, just, and relatively easy things of ending the Muslim ban and being nicer to America's neighbors. but. You know, the leadership in Mexico uh, was closer in practice to Donald Trump than Joe Biden. And getting an immigration bill that creates a solid foundation, especially if we think we're going to pick up the biggest missed opportunity in American foreign policy, which is consolidating North America as an energy platform, as an employment platform. Uh, that's a huge part of managing uh, the Chinese challenge. And that's going to be really hard to do, both domestically and internationally.
1: Um, All good good points. Um, David, what do you think, easy and hard on the foreign policy front?
3: Well, I I think Corey um, had it exactly right about how they've um, gotten a lot of the the low-hanging fruit Already, and I agree with everything that Rosa was saying because Rosa has a book coming out tomorrow. What's its title? All right, <laughs> All right. Uh, but um, uh, let's let's talk about the, the the sort of buckets here. So the things that President Trump did by executive order, with a few exceptions that I'm about to go mention, are the ones that are easiest to undo by executive order. So you can rejoin the Paris Accord, and you can undo the Muslim ban. And you can um, order that construction stop on, on the building of the wall. Those, the things that are purely bilateral. Um, and even getting New Start renewed last week uh, on the 5th, which was a big accomplishment that um, President Biden made a big point of in his speech. And the speech, as an aside, was a little bit of a spooky um, event. I went down to the State Department for it. And, you know, in these coronavirus days, his talk to the uh, staff uh, of the State Department, the young diplomats, was all over a screen. And in the State Department auditorium, we were spread out every four seats and then individual rows left between us. So there were maybe 50 people in there. And then we went upstairs to the speech. And I think there were 15 of us in the room, Uh, President Biden, Vice President Harris, Secretary of State, Tony Blinken. And then maybe six or seven reporters and a bunch of people running cameras. So you were watching a, a, na- a you know a nationwide address, but you it had more the feel of those sort of stand-ups in the White House, which you know uh, don't have much of a, of a in-person audience. Um, in the uh, collection of things that are going to be really hard to do, start with the Iran deal, where you've not only got to get the Iranians to Uh, break free of this whole concept of uh, who goes first, but you've also got to bring in the Europeans, the Russians, and the Chinese who are all initial signatories to this, um, and were involved in the negotiations. Um, Same thing, I think you would say, when you get to um, any of the discussions with the Europeans on Nord Stream, as Corey was mentioning because you're never going to actually get a common policy about Russia if you don't figure out a way for everybody to halt on Nord Stream for a while, or we're just going to see Putin play both sides. And the hardest one of these of all is going to be China, because what we learned from the Trump administration is you can sanction and tariff until you're blue in the face, but if everybody else isn't on the same page doing it together, it doesn't make that big a difference. If you do do it all together, then you've got economic force that's bigger than China's, and they may have to pay attention.
1: Live on C-SPAN 2, the historic second impeachment trial of Donald Trump. Watch complete coverage from this week's opening arguments to the Senate's vote to acquit or convict. Trump is charged with incitement of insurrection. For his role in the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol, he is the first ex-president to face an impeachment trial. Follow it all live and unfiltered on C-SPAN 2, online at cspan.org, or on the free C-SPAN Radio app. Okay, uh, let me let me shift. I'll do I'll do some. Other kinds of questions after I've, I've gone through this list, but, but, but I'd like to shift the focus from foreign policy to defense policy uh, and policies pertaining to um, everything that, that might happen in, or around, or having to do with the Pentagon. So what's easy and what's hard, Rosa?
2: Oh, boy. Um, nothing is easy here, actually. Um, I, don't, I don't think this is one which, where there are a whole lot of low-hanging fruit. Um, and that's partly because for the most part during the Trump years, the Pentagon didn't go quite as much off kilter as the rest of U.N. U.S. foreign policy. Um, so it's harder. It's, it's a little harder to just find egregious things to fix. And they've, and they've already started trying to fix some of the more egregious ones, like Trump's last minute appointments of various loyalists to all these different defense advisory boards. Uh, one of General, Austin, uh, excuse me. Secretary of Defense, former General Austin's first. Oh, you were group. you
1: were almost in big trouble there with I know, Corey.
2: I know. I I know I I but I caught myself in just in time. Um uh first moves was to ditch them all and basically say, hey, we're gonna we're gonna evaluate one by one who should come back. Um but but I so 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 not a lot of low-hanging fruit. I think the really challenging pieces right now, um Everyone still says, and the Pentagon has still said throughout the Trump administration, just as the Obama administration said towards the end, that we need to pivot to Asia, that we need to disentangle ourselves from the Middle East and so forth. And it has been remarkably difficult to do that. Um, I think that that remains an enormous challenge. Um, uh, Biden has committed himself, for instance, to withdrawing U.S. combat troops from Afghanistan, uh, but is already you know, facing some pushback for that, I think, I think making good on that promise in some way that feels meaningful, that isn't just I'm yanking everybody out tomorrow, but also isn't, well, actually, it's going to take us seven years to do this, uh, is going to be extremely difficult, because there are a lot of entrenched interests, including within the Pentagon itself, uh, that are opposed to doing exactly that. Um, I think, I think also, you know, going back to that, that aborted pivot, um. Right now, we're investing heavily in a lot of the wrong things and not investing in a lot of the things we should be investing in and in order to find in, a, in an environment in which nobody's going to be offering to give the Pentagon more money, the only way to invest in the newer technologies that we need will be to find some savings elsewhere. Um, but that will almost certainly mean going after at least two uh, sacred cows, one being um. Healthcare, pensions, et cetera, uh, because personnel costs are one of the you know largest cost drivers for the Pentagon. But that is extremely difficult to do politically. Uh, and the other is uh, potentially cutting the size of, uh, in particular, the land forces, Army, Army and Marines, and that also is extraordinarily difficult to do politically. But that's where the money is. That's where the potential savings are. That's also you know where there is likely to be most political opposition. So I am not at all sure, I'm not at all sure that uh, the Biden administration will succeed or even try that hard. I think they'll try at least a little, but I don't know whether they will try hard enough uh, to do those things.
1: Corey,
0: Well, I do not think they are gonna have any ambitions for Pentagon reform or defense policy. My guess, uh, and I take uh, Lloyd Austin's nomination as uh, a confirmation that they are gonna wanna make no news on this front at all. They're gonna keep defense spending roughly in line with where it is. They're gonna do uh, the right virtuous things like a a force-wide stand down on extremism. Uh, But I'd be surprised if they really make aggressive changes to recruiting or retention, for example, in order to get after that issue. Because I think they're just not going to want to spend time and effort on those things, whether it is lots of difficulty, lots of downside, uh, and they're hard to do whereas there is a lot easier things to fix elsewhere that need fixing and lots more, I think, interest and um, expertise in the people closest to the president on it.
1: Um, Okay. Does that extend to troop deployments in places like Afghanistan and so forth?
0: Yes. I mean, I was surprised at the status quo noises that I think we begin to hear out of major figures in the administration. You know, I had thought that President Trump had given the Biden administration an enormous gift with a reckless writing off of Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, but it looks like the early signs are that the Biden administration is going to carefully review the the existing circumstances in Afghanistan. You know, Jake Sullivan and others have already made noises about the Taliban not holding up their end of the bargain. That is the end to violence for the talks to proceed. And I think there, we're starting to hear suggestions that the Biden administration won't keep to the current timeline of negotiations with the Taliban because the Taliban aren't keeping their commitments. And that'll mean the United States and its NATO and other allies keeping troops in Afghanistan longer and in higher numbers than the Trump administration had been projecting. So so I do think they're less likely to make sweeping uh, changes, even when those sweeping changes like the end of the war in Afghanistan, which President Biden has called endless wars, that they're less likely to act on those inclinations in order not to have to expend political capital on those issues when they care more about other things.
1: David, just to pick up on that, Another place that they've said that they're going to uh, sort of reverse the, the Trump trend, or at least put the brakes on it, was troop deployments in Europe. And uh, one can imagine that might hold true elsewhere. So that seems to continue forward, Corey's theory. What do you think is easy and hard on the defense front?
3: Well, I agree that they are uh, all hard, uh, as, as Rosa indicated. And Rosa has a book coming out uh, tomorrow, <laughs> right. um, And it's called
2: Tangled <laughs> Up in Blue, Why Everything at the Pentagon is Hard. Uh,
3: and, and this is one of those things uh, <laughs> at the Pentagon that's really hard. Um, so, uh, the, I think the move on freezing the, the troop withdrawal, uh, from Germany was a wise one, because if you're trying to send a signal, as President Biden did in the speech the other day, that we're not going to roll over to the Russians, the first thing that, of course, he would like to see us do is reduce the number of troops that are available to NATO. And so I think he had no choice on that one. Those also are not costing us very much money. Um, Same thing about pulling out uh, troops from Asia, where Japan and South Korea pay so much in troop support, not as much, perhaps, as President Trump wanted them to, over the past four years, but they pay so much that it's not clear that moving them back, where you actually have to pay for all their housing and so forth, would um, actually save you any money. Afghanistan is going to be a really hard choice. And I've been talking to a lot of people in the administration about this in recent times. And uh, it's a real Hobson's choice at this point for Biden. No one has been more vocal than he has been over the years about the need to have a very minimal intelligence gathering counterterrorism force there. Um, And I think given his druthers, he would pull out the 2,500 Americans that are left. But the problem is twofold. One, if he does that, and the Taliban continue to take cities across Afghanistan, guess who's going to be politically vulnerable to the argument that he lost Afghanistan after 20 years of hard work across Republican and Democratic administrations. And you notice that both Barack Obama and uh, Donald Trump both talked about pulling everybody out of Afghanistan, and neither one of them did it in the end. Two presidents who came to it, shall we say politely, from extremely different angles. Um, I worry at the Pentagon, uh, as Corey does, that... um, not only are they not going to think that much about reform, they're not going to think about the reform they need to. You know, um, there's not a whole lot in Lloyd Austin's um, otherwise extremely admirable career to suggest that he has thought much about new technologies and competing with China. And if you need to reconfigure the Pentagon to think about AI and constant cyber conflict and um, new what new non-nuclear weaponry. Uh, I'm not sure that that's going to be his number one priority. And what worries me is that um, we have already lost four years of that, of of not thinking about that in in the Trump years. And I don't think we can afford another four, because it's not like the Chinese are standing still on those issues. And the last area where I think he could save a lot of money, but I think would be politically very difficult, is going to be in rethinking our nuclear force. And they're getting ready to spend depending on who you believe, $100 billion on a new land-based or ground-based nuclear missile to um, completely renovate uh, the sitting ducks of our ground-based forces. And uh, my own view is that it really is time to go look at whether or not the ground-based forces are adding that much deterrent. And of course, if you ended them, then it would free up a large number of silos for Rosa to begin to think about where it is that she's going to, you know, conduct her <laughs> book
1: tour. Um, I, I was almost sure you were going to say store remaindered copies of her book. Ooh, ooh, I hadn't thought of that.
3: <laughs> oh,
0: that's cold. There will be none.
1: I was. I'm sure there will be none. um Rosa, uh, there will
2: be none because because nobody buys physical books. Oh, that's there, a I think it's a virtual remainder.
1: Can I just ask you a question? Did you do an audiobook?
2: Uh, I didn't do the audiobook.
1: So you didn't do any yeah, of it? We don't have your voice?
2: There, there is an audiobook, thank God, with the voice of a professional audiobook person. So oh. it makes me sound so much smoother and cooler than than I possibly would be if I, wrote it, if I read it.
1: So somebody could order that if they wanted to on Audible, probably.
2: Yes, they absolutely could. And they could listen to it on the treadmill while they do the dishes, while they commute and so forth. And the narrator is fantastic. Well, And it's not me.
1: Come on, you've listened to the audio?
2: No, but I, I heard a clip of her reading <laughs> other books that were great. She did this, this the, Hillary Huber is her name, and she did the Elena Ferrante Books, among other things which so she's wow good.
0: you are traveling in fabulous high-speed circles <laughs> that Brooks. is very
1: that is you are our brilliant friend
0: i'm hoping that she can
2: magically lift it up to that level of sales but i'm not i'm not counting on that
1: yeah and the rai series is really good on that <laughs> i don't know if you watched it and then read the I book or the other. No, no really good so you know, I'm listening to all this, and I think all of this makes a, a lot of sense. And essentially, the easy part is undoing the Trump administration, and the hard part is doing anything else. And so, really, Rose, are we on foreign policy and on defense policy? Is is the Biden administration back to the future, and we're just doing Obama up
2: 2.0? I hope not. I mean, I really hope not. I I think um, I think there are some terrific people who have been nominated to senior Pentagon posts who absolutely understand how vital it is that it not be business as usual, but what is less clear to me still is whether Secretary Austin, uh, how aggressively he will pursue a, a change agenda and whether the White House itself has any appetite for it, as as Corey and, and David have both said. Um, I, I'm fearful that, we could end up with with back to the spinning little spinning beach balls that were defense policy late in the Obama administration.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, you know, Corey. I mean, the the reality is that you know we have a country in the middle of COVID crisis, and that's both a public health crisis and an economic crisis. We're coming out of summer of of great uh tension around uh, social divisions within within the United States, uh, and people really want to get the House in order domestically, and as uh, one of you pointed out, that's also a foundational foreign policy. Um, but but do you, do you expect that we're going to be sort of right back where we were at the end of the Obama administration, Corey?
0: No, I don't. I actually see signs that the Biden administration is going to be an improvement over the Obama administration. Nervous as I have been about their commitment to counter-terror operations, I I actually think the uh, Biden administration is more judicious on which fights to pick with Congress. You know, the difference as people were talking earlier between what you do by executive order and what you need to actually have the bare knuckled brawl with Congress over in order to get uh, a stable basis for important things like immigration. I think they've made good choices on that Um, cutting slightly counter uh, to the position that both David and I took on and Rosa on DOD reform. The appointment of Kath Hicks is, is a strong sign of competence. Somebody who knows how to get stuff done, who knows what priority should be for getting stuff done. uh, But, And I noticed in her confirmation hearings, she made made the case that if you want to execute current strategy, you need 3% to 5% increase year on year in defense. But what I don't think is that Secretary Austin will position himself uh, against an administration that doesn't want to do that. So so I do think um, they're going to focus elsewhere for things. And where they will be an improvement over the Obama administration is I don't think, uh, I think President Biden is smoother at working with Congress, more committed to working with Congress, even though he has an even more difficult Republican opposition to deal with than I think uh, President Obama did. I think he's more decisive, he's more willing to understand that doing nothing also has consequences. Um, And I think the way they have leaned forward on human rights as a component of American policy demonstrates that. Um, I also think they're less precious than the Obama administration was. Uh, So for example, You know, Jim Mattis got fired over having aggressive plans for uh, carrying out the Obama administration's strategy that if we didn't get a nuclear deal with Iran, we would attack Iranian nuclear facilities. And the Obama administration didn't want war plans, didn't want to give guidance that would cause war plans, and yet fired somebody for intuiting the guidance from their actual policy. Um, I, I think the early signs in the Biden administration are that they're not going to put subordinates in those kinds of positions. They're actually going to take responsibility for the outcomes that they want, which I think is wonderful. It's good governance, um, and it'll put us in a better place on foreign and defense policy than a lot of the choices the Obama administration didn't want to make because they didn't want to have responsibility
1: David, when I uh, uh, watched that speech uh, f- f- uh, that you were in the room for, um, you know, I was struck by the fact that, although a lot of it was kind of pro forma and going down the checklist and so forth, that this president was incredibly fluent in these issues, uh, and that, in fact, he has more foreign policy experience at a high level than any American president ever. Uh, And it was clear. He knew the brief. He knew the issues. He kind of knew where he wanted to go. Uh, And it sort of made me think back on the Obama administration in which the first couple of years were a learning curve, uh, sometimes a costly learning curve, and in which the remainder of the administration was infused with this don't-do-stupid-shit kind of caution, um, which is not really Biden's hallmark in these things. He he, kind of believes that good government can get things done and is a little bit more oriented towards that. Um, what was your takeaway listening to the speech, being in the room and, and knowing the context?
3: So, um, first of all, I, I think it's clear we've gone from the president who had the least foreign policy experience that we've had in modern times to the president with the most. Uh, Obama had a little bit. He had been on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for a couple of years before he got elected. Uh, President Biden uh, was on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for a couple of decades before he got uh, elected. Uh, it makes a difference. He spent his time going out to these national leaders. He didn't need to spend a lot of time figuring out what, what he thought about these issues. And you see that with the speed at which he has appointed people in the National Security Council. They were basically ready to go up and running and you know, three or four levels down, they had people there because he knew fundamentally what he wanted to do and is using um, Jake Sullivan as the, the way to, to make his way um, uh, through that pretty quickly. And, and Sullivan seems to know uh, Biden's mind pretty well. Uh, and Tony Blinken, of course, has been with Biden for 20 years. So it's a very experienced team. The question is, how much did they learn during the Obama years? Uh, And the test of this is going to be in the Afghanistan decision we already discussed. And in Iran, where they understand the limits and the mistakes they made in putting together a deal that had an expiration date about it, that today looks a whole lot closer than it did at the time. I mean, basically 2030, all the limits go off uh, on, on Iran. That's only nine years away. And that's a very different view than it is when it's 15 years away. So I think you're going to see them um, make some significant changes. I think the question is whether they can use this brief period of time where they have a bare majority in the Senate to go get those through. Because you may remember that uh, President Obama didn't make as much use of that time. And then, of course, lost control um, uh, by uh, after two years in and was kind of frozen thereafter. And I think that's the race that's underway now.
1: Yeah, Interesting. And I think, you know, these guys did seem to learn something. And you've heard comments from Tony Blinken, which suggests that he was uncomfortable with the way the Obama administration handled Syria, for example. And you've heard other comments about showing that they've adapted to the circumstance. It was actually kind of canny of them um, as they returned to sort of normal order, um, not only having Biden provide this speech, but they've given all these readouts of these calls with foreign leaders, which have given you a snapshot of where they're from. oh, calls
0: isn't came. it comforting to see the return to normal business?
1: Yeah, it's comforting, but it also lets us know, you know, but, you know, we're gonna. These are the lines that are important in China, or here are the lines that are important in Russia or with Saudi Arabia, and and those calls have not been mealy mouthed. They've they've been fairly fairly tough on a variety of things. They're although the most
3: interesting one we haven't seen yet, which was Xi
1: Jinping. Uh, that, well, that's true. Although we did have Tony's conversation with. Yeah. With his, um, counterpart. his counterpart in China, um, and which was, again, kind of tough. And they did respond, you know, the first kind of mini crisis of the, of the presidency or unexpected event with Myanmar, and they responded fairly um, quickly to all that. Um, and so, you know, it's, there are some encouraging signs of, of evolution in and amongst all of this. Uh, my last question is for you, Rosa, and that is, I heard you're writing a book. What's it about and when is it out?
2: Well, David, thank you so much for asking. Um, I do indeed have a book, it's called Tangled Up in Blue Policing the American City and it is about policing the American city. Uh, it tells you all about what it was like in your mid, in one's mid forties to become a recruit at the DC police academy and a, a patrol officer uh, in Washington DC and more uh, and it comes out tomorrow.
1: Wouldn't that be a good series?
2: It would. I, you kind know, of like a, a
1: mom, would, like a suburban mom walking around DC with a gun as a cop. <laughs> well,
0: a no, suburban no. mom tenured in law at Georgetown University is really yeah, 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 a ninja. Yeah. Right. It, they really
2: don't usually like to arm law professors. Um,
0: so what- <laughs> law for, law professors are already armed,
2: um, they don't like it at faculty meetings when you show up armed either i I find
1: yeah, yeah uh, well I, I I do think it's a book that everybody's going to want to be um, uh, picking up and reading because these are issues that have been front of mind for the United States, especially in the past year, especially as we've gone through. You know, defund the police, and the response to that, and so forth. Um, and uh, and uh, I, I assume you're dealing with all that stuff, are you not? Yes, R- Rose is nodding, folks. This is a podcast, but th- sorry, that,
2: my, I, I muted temporarily because my my canine, my canine assistant began to bark. Yeah, your canine
1: who <laughs> played a role in writing the book. Well, the canine assistant yeah. is paying a role in
3: announcing to other canines in the neighborhood that there is a book. Yeah. Out. yeah.
2: Right.
0: There's okay. A well, shoot. in the Trump that, administration, we had on. dog whistles. Yeah. Uh, in, the, in the Brooks administration, we have signaling by this book.
1: Yeah. Well, in the Biden administration, we actually have dogs, which I, you know, to dog owners. Dogs.
2: No, I, I hope you all watched the inauguration.
1: This is so
0: sweetly, corny, boring, adorable. I mean, during the Super Bowl, also to have the president of the United States call in to active duty military folks who are deployed and join the watch party for a couple of minutes. It's just really nice to see an administration revert to the norms of comportment of leadership in the U.S.,
1: Although there is, you know, there are already, you know, conspiracy theories. There is a theory that Champ and Major are the leaders of something called the Dog State and that they have cut off no. the initiative of the president to get a cat in the White House.
2: Uh, well, that's good. That's you know, good. David, since, since
3: you have been doing so many um, spin offs from our original broadcast here, have you thought about Dog <laughs> State Radio?
1: Um, Grizzly, my dog, has thought about Dog <laughs> State Radio and was willing to do it with your dog and with Rose's dog. Um, G- Corey, do you have a dog? Otherwise, I don't think we can do it.
0: <laughs> no, but I, w- I am pro uh, Dog State Radio, so believe you should proceed without a shocky Tribal contribution. I,
3: I think what you heard is that uh, Corey doesn't have a dog in this podcast
1: yeah uh-huh. she does not you know oh. ed, Luce, ed Luce, by the way who is off writing his book and so what? we don't have him on for a couple of weeks um w- would not participate in this because he has a very bad track record with pets if anybody <laughs> anybody who's listened to this podcast knows but, but but maybe rosa and david we will get together uh and discuss and negotiate
2: david, on behalf of david our dogs. Can bring a cow
1: a cow yeah
0: yeah,
1: well, yeah, herded by Charlotte, our yellow lab.
0: Excellent.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, this sounds extremely appealing, and at least as a, at least as a, an Instagram. Um, anyway, um, thank you all, uh, and uh, thank congratulations on your book, Rosa. And uh, we will continue discussions along these lines, uh, of course, over the course of the weeks ahead. This week we also have a discussion about a, a significant upcoming book. We've got a sort of conversation on whether the Never Trump uh, tr- Never Trump movement. That's one of our, you know, sort of ask the blob, uh, uh, which is what we're calling the, these things where webinars where you can post questions to our uh, uh, guests. And so uh, Max Boot and David uh, Frum are gonna appear on that and you can post some questions to them. Uh, I am sure on our Thursday pod, which is more legally oriented, we're going to talk about um, uh, the the impeachment process, which will be going on by then. And of course, by Friday, you'll be well in the mood for The Secret Life of Cookies and a discussion about policy and baked goods. Uh, so join us for all those things. Go to the DSRnetwork.com for more information on them and click on the membership button and you Know, become a member and then go to Amazon or go to your local bookstore and order Rosa's book, which I just don't remember the name of it. But
2: tangled up in <laughs> blue,
1: tangled, tangled up in blue. Um, if, if anybody here does not remember the name of that, go see a, a neurologist, uh, because we mentioned it 50 times here as we should have tangled up in blue at bookstores tomorrow. Uh, and, uh, and if you're listening to this tomorrow, at bookstores right now. So go get one, and uh, we will see you all soon. Bye-bye, and uh, stay healthy, everybody.